Expectations were like fine pottery. The harder you held them, the more likely they were to crack. We are back. Welcome. It's AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. The we today is the regular three. I'm Ramia Umavan. Jacob Shymansky is also here. Hello. Nisreen Abdelmajid is on the tech side. Hey, Nis. Hi, hi. Okay, good. How's it going, guys? You're still here. Yeah, we're doing well. And um, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> and... Somebody has volunteered to talk about what is who is this your favorite author or like what's going on? Why are we focusing on Brandon Sanderson? Uh, the quote you heard at the start that was from Brandon Sanderson, and I just want to touch on that quote really quickly because I love it. Expectations is something we all need to temper in our lives because I feel like your happiness is directly tied to your expectations of mm. things. Preach right if you go to a pizza place and you expect it to be the best pizza you've ever had. And it comes out mediocre, you're disappointed and sad. If you go to a place and you expect it to be mediocre and it comes out amazing, then you had a great evening. It's all about your expectations. And if you have too high expectations for things, that can be your friends, your partner, your job, like anything. Mm. It can crack, like he says. And it's important to temper your expectations. And I think he said it very eloquently. I know. It was very, very well done. You hear this kind of sentiment in many ways, but this one, it was... Quite poetic and uh, felt very tactile. Like we gotta release those pottery mugs. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Fail. So <laughs> that's that's why I'm not Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> okay, moving on. Moving Move on. on. Okay. Yeah, please. So I'm bringing up Branderson for three reasons. Branderson. Um, Is that what we're gonna refer to him? Branderson. As? Sure. Yeah. Branderson. Okay, thanks. Brandon Branderson. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so the main reason I want to bring him up is because of his absolutely bonkers Kickstarter campaign and his subsequent beef with Audible. I'm going to expand Ooh, on that, okay? Drama. Um, two, yeah, drama. Uh, the other thing is his unbelievable productivity and hyper-optimized workflow that lets him publish books like it was a factory of 20 authors. It's unbelievable how many books he releases and Whoa. just how much he writes. It's crazy. I'll go into his entire system for how he writes, okay? Mm-hmm. And number three is if you haven't heard of him already, you will soon because none of his series have been turned into movies or TV shows, which is usually how authors become like mainstream. Right. He will eventually. He's been teasing that Hollywood is getting involved with his multiple series. Okay. Like he's one of his series is going to become mainstream and he's going to become a really big name. So, what is he really known for? Wait. What? Before any of this. Okay, question. Are you a fan? I can't tell based on the three part thing that we're going to do whether you're a fan of him or not. I'm a fan of him as a person. I find him fascinating. It's a bit of a stretch to say that I'm a fan because I've only read one book of his. Oh my god! Out of his, but you're like, just like you've deep dived into thirty-two novels because he's fascinating as a person. Right. Seriously, oh, he's this is such an exceptional author in so many ways and kind of middling in others. And clearly <laughs> inefficient. Okay, yeah, incredibly person. efficient. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, he's mainly a fantasy author, but he's also dabbled in science fiction. He writes unbelievably quickly and releases a stupid amount of books. Um, he's beloved by his fan base to the point where it's basically cultish. He's only 47, and he published 32 novels already, and that doesn't even include his multiple novellas. 
um, and his short stories and essays, like he's written a whole bunch. And that's on top of a very frequent blog that he updates all the time. He makes himself super available and very transparent to his fans. Like he has a month by month breakdown of what he's been writing and what he's planning on releasing. And that goes back all the way up to like 2011. So you can tell exactly what he's been working on at any given mm. time in the past like 10 years. Um, 15 of his books have been on the New York Times bestseller list, which is an insane accomplishment for a fantasy author, which is not a very popular genre. His book, Oathbringer, still has the uh, record for the most pre-ordered book on Audible. Um, He has a yearly convention called Dragonsteel, which is just a fan convention where every year it attracts over like 5,000 people and it covers exclusively content from his books and his series. He's known for his Mistborn and Stormlight Archive series, which Mistborn has seven books out already and Stormlight Archive has four books out and I think the fifth one is coming out in 2024. To put that in perspective, like a lot of fantasy authors, they'll have one series. Yeah, that's like what I was one just saying. Where do you even start your journey with this guy? Because he's got so much going at the same time. Yeah, and the funny thing is some people pick him up and don't realize that he has like four other series. No. And Okay, so I said Mistborn and Stormlight Archive. Yeah. That's two series. He actually has five. <laughs> okay. Some of it is like for children. Some of it is YA. Some of it is adult fantasy. But it's pretty much all... Like three quarters of it is fantasy, and the other way, the other one is uh, sci-fi. Okay. Any questions? Yeah, to me that's the same thing. But anyways, we're not going to talk about that right now. We'll save that for next week when we're talking genres. Has he talked about? Because he's got this huge fan base. He's got so much going on. Has he actually talked in interviews or online or whatever about why he is so everywhere? Like why he's got a billion things going on? I think that's just the type of guy he is. He's just a hyper-productive person that loves writing and has developed... But I, I'm developed talking about, like... This, yeah. Wait, okay, yeah. You're going to talk about the, the methodology Yeah, he just it, developed but, a way to write a billion books. A no kidding. But do you like, mean, like, why he does that? When do you sleep? That? How do you go in and out of one genre into another? Like, when you talk about... When you hear from people like Stephen King, he's also a prolific author, right? Um, he talks about having to stick to one book, having to deep dive into there like you you switch on into the book and then switch off out into real life so he has specifically talked about this where because he writes multiple books at the same time he finds that if he has writer's block which he barely ever gets like he doesn't know what writer's oh, block he is he just goes to another he just moves on to the next one Get and then out. when he finishes that it he's much more prepared to keep moving on the previous book right so he can just compartmentalize like hell mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm getting, his, in essence. All right. Yeah. Okay, moving on. So one of the main things that put him on the map initially was when he was a pretty young author, like relatively unknown, he got picked to finish the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan, mm. who <laughs> passed away um, with three books remaining in his series. That's so huge. the widow of Robert Jordan handpicked Brandon Sanderson to write it. And he was pretty young at the time. I think he was like 30 or something. Just because she'd read his books. Yeah, just because she read his You're books and guy. liked him. Mm-hmm. You can and impersonate. What The Wheel of Time is known for is for being an, a massive fantasy series that's building up to this massive epic conflict of ridiculous proportions, it, but actually lives up to it. 
And Sanderson's job was to finish that series. And very, very well received. Yeah? The last three books really, really well received. Where basically he just wrote the this, this story based on Robert Jordan's notes. And do you think uh, somebody it. should do that with J.R.R. Martin's? Um, yes. Oh, my God. Give Absolutely. Just, just give it to it Brandon up. Sanderson, just, honestly. Somebody just pick it up, man. We're tired of waiting. <laughs> Sanderson could do a great job, honestly. God. He's like, he's AI. He is AI. Okay, so based on my rough calculations, I saw somewhere that he writes 370,000 words per year. That averages out to about 45 hours of audiobook content per year that he oh releases. Oh, my. Well, that's writing. 45 right. hours of audiobook content. He channeled, going back to Wheel of Time, he channeled Robert Jordan through his notes and was able to write three more books that were so well received. Did anybody or is there a lot of no, this didn't do well or nitpicking? Because I feel like that's huge for fantasy. People, people pointed out that the writing style was different and that certain characters acted slightly out of character, especially in their dialogue. Mm. But when it comes to the plot and character motivations and actions, uh, very, very well received. Although people said that they grew to like his writing because, like like it or not, you read 11 books by Robert Jordan. Like, It's a bit weird to finish off the story with... Somebody else. Brandon Sanderson. But the thing is, Brandon Sanderson does write like Robert Jordan. Okay. They, they have similar writing styles. So the widow, yeah. yeah. She did a good yeah, job. Yeah, she did a great job at picking him. Like, they could have picked so many other people that were much more popular. Like, people were lining up to finish this series. Because, mm. like, it's an instant boost to your career. How many times have you read? Or have you? How many times have I read Wheel of Time? Yeah, have you? Have I read, read the first seven books. Oh, Okay. Yeah, I stopped you're, you're halfway. <laughs> you're not even close. Yeah, I'm not even close. I'm, <laughs> okay. I, I have mixed feelings about The Wheel of Time, to be mm. honest. So he really embraced audiobooks very specifically because he mentioned that 75% of his sales for most of his books are through audiobooks. Isn't that bonkers? Hold up. 75%. Although that is a fantasy and sci-fi thing because fantasy and sci-fi do really well in audiobooks. Yeah, but that's still one part of the picture. If About you're 50%. if your whole revenue seventy five percent of it is audiobooks, that's wild to me. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Oh Although, my typically fifty percent of sales for fantasy and sci fi are through audiobooks. Okay. Which is way above Memoirs and, I guess because and all thrillers and stuff her. like that. Like, there's just something about fantasy and sci-fi that people love listening to in audiobooks. And I have a couple theories for that. Mm. One, it's because they're really long and you get really good value for your credit on Audible. Yeah, that's fair. Two, um, pronunciation. There are oh, tons of names man, and so places true. that you don't know how to pronounce, and it's annoying. So like, true. It, it's genuinely super annoying for a lot of people. So, like, when you, as an audiobook listener, when you talk to someone who's read the fantasy book that you listen to, sometimes they'll say a <laughs> you name go and just correcting like, people? what? What are you saying? <laughs> My brother's like, uh, I always found the Freeman and Dune really interesting. The what? I'm like, oh, the Fremen. Oh, look at Freeman. He's been putting a double E in it the whole time. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. That's actually wild. You're pointing out something really big here. Because do you go around correcting people or checking people like no. based on their... No, no, no. It, yeah? If, 
Now you will. Fantasy names have gone kind of stupid though. Like you want to, you always want to make the names like slide off the tongue, but yes. also be like catchy and right. memorable. Because but if it's not audiobooks, yeah. If somebody's not listening to audiobooks, how are they getting the names right then? Do they, is there like a place people go online? If something's been turned into a video game or a movie or a series on TV, then you got that to cheat from. But where if else it's do you just go? a book, yeah, yeah, like you don't it's know just whatever how to you pronounce put in it. Your head. It's whatever. Yeah, you basically need to fill in the blanks. <laughs> Unless the authors exactly. talked about it. Although some. Uh, some books will actually have a, what do they call it? An appendix? Uh, not an appendix. Like a, an, a glossary. Of a words. glossary yeah. at the end, yeah. Well, they will actually have pronunciations, mm-hmm. like phonetic pronunciations okay. of how to say things. Fair. Mm-hmm. All fantasy titles should come with that. But anyways, yeah. we do audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a great <laughs> uh, That's a great stat. Yeah. What else? Okay, I want to move on to his Kickstarter campaign slash beef with Audible. Okay. So during the pandemic, like a lot of people, he found himself with a whole lot of time. And in secret, he wrote five books over the course of two years. And I say in secret because, like I said earlier, he's always very transparent about what he's working on at any given time. So on top of the handful of books that he was writing, he also secretly wrote five books. And then at the start of 2023, he said, all right, everyone, um, I wrote five books during the pandemic. And some of these were really highly anticipated titles, like the most recent Mistborn book. Mm-hmm. and said, I'm releasing these, but not on Audible or Amazon. Why did he secretly write? Just because he didn't want to get uh, bogged down by I all think, the semantics? I'm assuming because he didn't want to set the expectation that he was going to write like eight oh, okay, books for fans. in two years. Yeah, like it's okay. about setting realistic expectations, but he set himself a personal goal to write these books, right? And he did. He did. And they so, were part of series and such. They were part of series and stuff. They just got mm-hmm. released a lot earlier than people expected. Interesting. All right. right. So he decided to self-publish these five books because he didn't want them to be on Audible or Amazon because he thought they had what he he called unconscionable business practices. So he started a Kickstarter to be able to fully self-publish these five books and he wrote $41 million. That's the world record for the most successful Kickstarter. Oh, wow. And to be clear, he didn't need $41 million to self-publish. He he redistributed a lot of that money to other Kickstarters, which he thought were like of a a similar type having to do with publishing and authors and stuff like that. This is um, beyond boycotting, huh? Yeah, like, yeah, it's kind of crazy, but he's he like, did this I for do what you do, but better. He did this to be clear, just for these five books. Yes, like he's still publishing like the rest of these series on his typical publisher channels and stuff like that. So, like he he used that those millions of dollars to print them and send them out himself, and his team like literally send out PDFs via email and MP3s oh. for audiobooks and Ooh. stuff like that. But it's interesting <laughs> that he would. Do this, first of all, write in secret, then have this approach to publishing it and be very aware of his rights around this. Because you'd think he'd end up in a mess, right? Some mess with publishers or with distributors or just the rights to his novels. I, I did not think of it that way. That's a really good oh, point. God, yeah. Although he has a big team behind him. Like, I'll get into this a little later. Yeah, but what does secret mean? Did his team know that he was writing in secret or was this like a very, very I think his editors journey? knew. I think his okay. editors knew because he works heavily with that editors. Sure. It's just his fans didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wrote this on his blog regarding his objections with Audible and why he didn't opt to publish those five books on that platform. The books will not be on Audible for the foreseeable future. This is a dangerous move on my part. I don't, know, I don't want to make an enemy of Amazon, who owns Audible. 
I like the people at Audible. I've had several meetings with them this year. But Audible has grown to a place where they're bad for authors. It's a good company doing bad things. Again, this is dangerous to say, and I don't want to make anyone feel guilty. I have an Audible account and a subscription. It's how my dyslexic son reads the books he reads. Audible did some great things for books, notably spearheading the audio revolution, which brought audiobooks down to a reasonable price. I like that part a lot. However, they treat authors very poorly, particularly independent authors. The deal Audible demands is unconscionable, and I'm hoping that by bringing this to their attention, it'll change the issue. Oof. If you want details, the current industry standard for a digital product is to pay the creator 70% on a sale. So it's what Steam pays on it's what Steam pays a game creator on a game sale. It's what Amazon pays on ebooks. It's what Apple pays for apps downloaded, which as you remember, they got a lot of heat oh, for yeah. taking 70%, right? Mm. Audible pays 40%, almost half. And brick and mortar stores have to deal with um, rent and staff and mm-hmm. warehousing costs, right? Audible pays indie authors less than a bookstore does. I knew things were bad, which is why I wanted to explore other options with the Kickstarter, but I didn't know how bad. Indeed, if indie authors don't want to be exclusive with Audible, they could drop from 40% to a measly 25%. Buying an audiobook instead of from another site literally costs the author money. There are no true competitors to Audible. End quote. So let me explain. Like, if you, Ramya, like, were to write a book and want to publish it on mm. Audible and you don't want to be exclusive on Audible, you get 25% on every sale. So if your book is $10, you only get mm-hmm. $2.5. And in some places, it's actually less than that. Mm. And let's not, let's not forget that Audible doesn't produce your book. You have to pay for a producer. Oh, yeah, they're merely distributors. Yeah, you have to pay for your narrator, and you have to do, like, royalty splits as well. So if you're paying $3,000 to produce this audiobook, it might actually be more for, like, a high-level narrator. Then you need to sell, like, if you do the math in your head, you have to sell thousands and thousands yeah. of copies before you even break even. Break even yeah. And if you're, like, you're, if you're an indie author publishing your first book, which nowadays you, you need to be on Audible, especially in mm. fantasy and sci-fi, right? You're m- almost guaranteed to not break even. You're There's, literally paying money to be on Audible. And the alternative, as he points out, is what? Self-publishing? Mm-hmm. You know, other distributors who don't have the clout that Audible does, that people don't take as seriously if you're not on Audible? Not at this all. This is rough. Yeah. Um, Audible has a... Not exactly a monopoly at this point, but they they dominate the market. Close enough. Yeah, the I biggest mean, new player is Spotify. Yep, but Spotify is on a different level. It's on a different like level. Spotify's but trying to catch up with audiobooks, whereas Audible is audiobooks. Although I think um, Spotify is taking more and more of a chunk of the market. Because their product is really nice. Sure. For the time being, you still have to go to the website, like on a web browser, to go and grab the books, and then it pops up in your library. Mm. Like, you can't actually get them on the app directly, which is kind of annoying. But, like, that's the thing with Audible. It's so nice. It just works really well. Well, that's the thing. You're not going to... If someone new... I always think about this when we're targeting, right? If someone new is getting on a platform... They're going to get on Audible because it is the audiobook place. Yeah, you have to. You're not going to be taken seriously if you're not on Audible. 
And um, and that includes audiobook listeners. People are going to go to Audible first before anything else. And they have that power. Uh, and unfortunately, they're not using it well. So the way he did this Kickstarter campaign and this five-book release is kind of like putting himself in the shoes of an indie author, I guess, and figuring out where he could go or or giving us the comparison of where it would be, how it would be for someone who doesn't have what he has, the reputation as an author. The figure you hear is 40% if you're exclusive on Audible. You need to remember that's that's the deal Brandon Sanderson gets. Yeah. A massive author. You could be like a middling author or like a mid-tier author and get less than 40% right. because these are all these things are negotiated. And you don't want to be exclusive on Audible because then that stops you from being on Spotify and Libby and all these other places. No. Right? And uh, like it goes around to that point around books and access to books again. You know, we used to have these conversations around physical books, but now we're even in the digital digital realm saying, like, shouldn't books be more accessible? Shouldn't authors be more free to write, to distribute without having to worry about where my stuff is? Right. And like, what does Audible even do? It's just the infrastructure to deliver yeah, yeah. books. Why do they think it's reasonable to take a 75% cut in some places? This is unbelievable. And then Yeah, to, it's so unfair. To the um self-publishing aspect of things too. Self-publishing is work. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Like Especially a nobody author yeah. who has to get their stuff out and has to do it the self-publishing way. I mean we can get into that another time because we're running out, but there's just there's no way. There's no like you get such a leg up from publishing on somewhere like Audible versus self-publishing the other thing with audible is that you don't get to price your book because because right, audible has that credit system mm-hmm. because audible has the credits right mm-hmm. you get one credit every month if you're a premium subscriber and the cost of the premium i think it's what is it like 16 dollars in canada yeah that means they effectively co- price every audiobook at 16 dollars Canadian, yep, give or take, right? and then and then yeah. rely on any extra purchases you're going to do. Or yeah, exactly. But most people it. buy it with credits. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, essentially, you have to buy into their business model. Yeah, and a lot of authors, especially if it's a really big book, a really long audiobook, they want their books to be more expensive than sixteen dollars, mm. right? Okay, I do want to get into his workflow because it's absolutely crazy. So it's all about consistency for him. He bangs out about two thousand words per day about 1,500, 2,000 words per day. And he separates his day by like very distinct blocks. Like every day is super disciplined. So he writes from noon to 5 p.m. And then from 5 to 10 p.m. is like family time because he has a family. Uh-huh. And then from like 10 to 2 a.m. he writes. So that's almost, what is that, nine? Eight, nine hours a day wow. that he writes. And he doesn't write on Thursdays. Like all his interviews all his professoring, everything that's not writing, he does that on Thursdays. What no a clean exception. Structure. Yeah, it's really, really clean. And his entire team works around it. And when he writes, <laughs> he sits on a sofa very unergonomically <laughs> with a oh. laptop. <laughs> oh, come on, Brandon. <laughs> Don't do that. I, I thought that was a funny little touch. Yeah. So um, he works with his editors very very precisely and he's been very transparent about how he works with his editors so his three editors the first one is your very traditional editor that'll read through your manuscripts 
uh, write notes and then get back to him. The second one works with beta readers. So he has a team of like 50 to like 100 beta readers, which will just like some, like they'll do screen tests for audiences for movies and TV shows. And these are not like authors or like literature students or anything like that. They're just like fans and just tell them like, this is mm-hmm. what I thought of this. This is what I thought of that. Like just a general idea what how the audience is going to receive a book. And this editor basically compiles the basically compiles the opinions of these beta readers. He's got this down to a science. Yeah. The third one is a continuity editor. So because he has these massive books and these different series. Not to mention basically multitasking. Yeah, basically multitasking. Uh, What she does is she manages like a wiki. They actually have a software where every time he creates a character, she creates a page for that character saying like, this is where they are at this point of the story. This is their color eyes. This is their background. This is their lineage. So anytime he wants to like bring back that character while he's writing, he just go to the wiki and just be really, really clear. And then he also sets like, this was something important that they said. So you need to bring it back later on. Here's something you can foreshadow. Here's what I'm hoping to do with this character. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that he does sorry I need to bang this out yep. <laughs> I find this so fascinating um, is he has obviously like a story structure like a long term story structure which is pretty typical but he also has a short term story structure where while he's writing he always writes down what he needs to do next in the next like two or three chapters what he needs to set up clever yeah so that means that when he sits down for one of his four-hour blocks, he knows exactly what he needs to write. He's prepped it. Yeah, yeah, he's prepped it. It's not like he sits down and goes, what do I need to write? He sits down and says, yeah. I need to write this chapter that's prepping for this event uh, based on these revisions from my three editors. So he knows exactly what he needs to write every single time he sits down. Like, honestly, he's a computer. I, I love that he knows exactly what he's doing and knows how to do it well. And utilizes his resources to push that productivity, like the editors. But then I think, like, you know, where is the imagination of it all? He's just he's just ready to go. Like, he's, it's so methodological. Is that the word? Yeah. That he he knows where he needs to. He knows how many things need to be. It's, it's task-based. It's a to-do list. Yeah, he's very methodical about it all uh-huh, and that uh-huh. seems like it would be counterintuitive to a creative field exactly. like writing writing and fantasy particularly. but the books speak for themselves yeah he's wildly creative he's undisputedly Goodness. a master of world building he has a bunch of um lectures on story mm. on creative writing and world building they're like i guess that i let like two three hours long there's like six of them and each of them have like millions of views yeah. on youtube they're just available to anyone it's just incredible because you can break down the whole process. Yeah. And the books themselves, uh, another thing that the fans will generally agree on is that he's not a good, like, prose writer. He doesn't write beautifully, right? He, If anything, he his writing is not great, to be honest. Okay. But So there's definitely but some issues of quantity over quality. Um, but his plotting and mm. setting and characters are excellent. One thing he always says is to write for the ending. Everything he does is to set up like some sort of massive climax. People describe it as like an avalanche where everything on happens at once. Uh, the fans uh, endearingly call it the Sanderlanche. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So that's Brandon Sanderson. Like, Yo. I, the only book I've read from him is The Way of Kings. And 
really, really great start to the Stormlight Archive series. Mm. Um, I did have my issues with the writing. Like, it is super basic at times. Yeah, Kaladin was mad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that yeah. type of sentence. Yeah, and, but, and just reading what he wrote for the, the Audible Kickstarter stuff, too, I'm thinking, hmm, how is he as an author based on this That's letter? funny, because I yeah. thought the exact same yeah. thing when I pasted that into the yeah. script. I'm like, hmm, this is not a That's good a example. That's a sample yeah. of his work, just, guys. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> and Don't some people so find that insurmountable. They're yeah. just like, I can't. He writes like a kindergartner. <laughs> I can't. No, I love this. This is brilliant. We gotta go. But Jacob, great presentation. Well done. A plus. All right, bye everyone. All right, we'll be right back with a conversation on Know Your Narrator with Sarah Hillis. She's got an interesting guy with a smooth, silky voice. This is AMI Audiobook Review. Welcome back. This is AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. Ramia, Jacob, and Nisreen around the table, and we're also inviting Sarah Hillis for Know Your Narrator. This is that once-a-month segment where we get into the world of narrators in audiobooks, and we shout out those voices behind our favorite listens and get to know the fascinating lives and backgrounds of the individuals. Sarah, today we're talking about Eduardo Ballerini. Who's this? Yeah. Who's this man? Yeah. Well, he's, I first encountered him in a Jeffrey Deaver book called The Steel Kiss, one of the Lincoln Rhyme books. And uh, I just really was fascinated by his voice. It, he has this really kind of cultured way of speaking. And, and yet he can obviously, you know, bring the narration style. You know, we need action. He'll do action. You need uh, contemplation. He'll do contemplation. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it was just a really neat voice. And that was, I don't know, maybe 2014 or something. I don't remember when that was, but uh, it was a long time ago now. And uh, I just really think he's a cool, a cool narrator. That's kind of why I wanted to do him. So just based on that one book, right? You were like, huh? I'm curious. Yeah, I've heard other books since, but yeah, yes, but yeah, yes. definitely. Like, okay, what an impression. Mm-hmm. What would you say are some of his main distinguishing characteristics for his narration? Well, I would say he's a really precise speaker. Um, he'll 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 announce he'll enunciate his words unlike myself he'll enunciate his words um really well and yet um his voice is so silky smooth like it's just it's it's this really nice kind of lilt to it i guess you could say and so he his even though he's precise in his speaking he's really he he flows really well with the words of the novels or the whatever he's reading mm. he reads a lot of poetry as well and uh, he's he's really conscientious about how he presents the words on the page to the listener. Before we talk more about his silky smooth voice, why don't we uh, take a listen? Please, I feel teased. On the 48th floor of a glistening tower on the southern tip of Manhattan, Mitch McDear stood alone in his office and gazed out the window at Battery Park and the busy waters beyond. Boats of all shapes and sizes crisscrossed the harbor. Massive cargo ships laden with containers waited almost motionless. The Staten Island Ferry inched past Ellis Island. A cruise ship packed with tourists headed out to sea. A mega-yacht was making a splendid entrance into the city. A brave soul on a 15-foot catamaran zigzagged about, dodging everything. A thousand feet above the water, no fewer than five helicopters buzzed about like angry hornets. In the far distance, Trucks on the Verrazano Bridge stood still, bumper to bumper. Lady Liberty watched it all from her majestic perch. It was a spectacular view that Mitch tried to appreciate at least once each day. Occasionally, he succeeded. 
but most days were too hectic to allow time for such loafing. He was on the clock. His life was ruled by it, just like the hundreds of other lawyers in the building. I'm not going to lie. I don't even know what he was talking about. I just love his voice so much. <laughs> what was this scene about? <laughs> it's it's about, well, if you've ever read The Firm, it's about Mitch McDear from The Firm. Mm. Okay. And this is the latest book by John Grisham called The Exchange. It's published by Penguin Random House Audio and used with permission. All right. There we go. Okay. And uh, <laughs> the scene, yeah, it was just about his office and the view from his office. And we're learning about where he is now after the firm, which was down south in, was I don't know if it was Tennessee or where, I can't remember where it took place. But this one's, um, and he's in New York now. So he's a really successful guy and he's not this young, young mm. youth anymore, mm-hmm. right? So Quite a serious yeah, so, tone. Though it is smooth, I, I feel there's a lot of just uh, strictness. Maybe that's just the content, but have you heard him do things very different than this? Uh, he's he's quite able to bring levity to to his his narration too. Yeah, th- that was just sort of the the scene setting, and of course, being a John Grisham book, it's gonna probably yeah. be a bit edgy, and you know, right? You know, so is he American? Yeah, he is American Italian. Actually, he's he's kind of got two citizenships. He was born in. Um, New York. Uh, wait, I think he was born in New York. I can't remember now. <laughs> he was born in 1970, and he's kind of gone back and forth between America and Italy throughout his childhood and things. Because his dad's actually Italian. He's a he's a well known Italian poet called Luigi Ballerini, and uh, so yeah, he's got this. He also went to boarding school, which maybe is why he's got this sort of way of speaking that you might have if you go to those prep schools mm. I was gonna New say England he sounds or vaguely posh doesn't he <laughs> right yeah, yeah a little a lilt of, of uh, money mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is that where the poetry comes from was he just influenced so much by his father well it's interesting he he says his dad used to tell stories about reading him uh, Dante and 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 you know things like that you know while he's a little baby in his crib i mean obviously he never he never actually took that in when he was a baby and in the way that you would you know when you're older and that he does remember going to poetry readings as a as a kid and there'd be always poets around their house and kind of thing he didn't really love going to the poetry readings when he was a young kid because who sort of would wouldn't you want to go play with your friends or Uh something but but um (laughs) But he he learned an appreciation of poetry, certainly in in elementary school and boarding school, because he said at the time, even in university, he said um, memorizing bits of poetry was kind of part of what you did back in those days. Uh, So he had to he had to do that for class assignments. But he realized what what a neat thing it was to read poetry out loud. Actually, he really, really liked that. I do remember doing that in class, memorizing poems and excerpts. That was a thing they used to do a lot more for Shakespeare and poems and stuff like that. Did you guys do that? Oh, yes. We had to memorize the the quality of mercy from the Merchant of Venice and Friends Roman's Countrymen from uh, Julius Caesar. I remember that. And did you have to recite it out loud? Yep. And did you find that 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 was really good practice for just communicating? I thought it was cool. Uh, most of my friends were like, why are we doing this? But mm. <laughs> but I was a nerd and I loved it. So there you go. I wonder if that kind of thing is more popular now because of audiobooks. Because people might think that there's more work to be done in like spoken word content. 
interesting point. I know that there's more popularity now because of things like slam poetry and just yeah, spoken say. word having different elements added to it, you know, like hip-hop elements and just going live to see poetry, poetry being implemented into performance more broadly. But I didn't grow up doing any poetry. Poetry felt so niche, like you had to be into it and then tell people you were into it and then they would find out about poetry. <laughs> there was none of it in school. I wasn't artsy enough wow. to enjoy poetry pro- yeah, like, properly. Like I can see when words sound nice, but I can't break it down like mm-hmm. like people can break down fine art, you know? Right. No, there was one class in grade five where we had to write a limerick. Was that the one It's like 5755? Five, five? There once no, was a that's, dibba that's dibba. That's the haiku. Okay. The limerick is five lines long. Uh, yeah. The haiku is five seven five. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, so obviously I don't remember very well. But there was an exercise, and all of us wrote really goofy poetry around <laughs> yeah. that about a monkey oh, yeah. named Fred. But um, yeah, <laughs> it yeah, was like my only memory of poetry growing up. But all that to, all that said, like I feel like when you you're immersed in the world of poetry and you recite poetry, you mm. kind of. You recite it in a very specific way that's theatrical, yep. very enunciated, and very. When you read it, you really understand where the the points to put more weight on are, and I think that's where Eduardo got some of his uh, mm. his chops. Right? Would right. you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's true. And and just just a little aside, I actually believe that people are always taught to study poetry wrongly. Uh, they're taught oh. to break it down and look at symbols and just read the poem and let the symbols come to you. Don't be, you know, dissecting the heck out of it. And I'm, this is a master's, um, I have a master's degree in English literature and I'm saying this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, and that's what he did. He, he, uh, he, 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 I, I, on one interview I found, he, um, he said in his like grade five or something, he was asked to, to um to write out a poem like everyone was asked to write a poem and hand it in but he didn't understand what the teacher had said so he copied a poem <laughs> and 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 handed it to her and she was like did you write this and he's and he's like well no i did like it wasn't mine like he, he was he owned up to it but he didn't, he didn't understand he just like he literally thought write out a poem <laughs> <laughs> that's adorable. Oh, okay. Bad wording on the yeah. teacher's part. That's yeah, adorable. yeah. Don't yeah. compose a poem. Just Bad write understanding one. of a kid's mind. Like, okay, I'll just copy out a poem then. Yeah. <laughs> it's like reading the fine print. <laughs> mm. But speaking of which, though, like the academics and such, um, he did a lot of schooling. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he. Well, he did his high school at the boarding school Deerfield Academy, which is a pretty like hugely prestigious school i mean i knew of it before and i've never gone to it or anything but uh, and then he went to wesleyan university for english and things like that he sort of wanted to be an academic a writer that sort of thing but when he got a an opportunity to study latin in rome of all places in the vatican uh, (laughs) he went there and he sort of realized wait a minute this is a pretty solitary life i don't know that i want my job to be this solitary which is interesting, as we'll kind of get to in a, in a, in a few minutes. Uh, there was a Comédie dell'arte group in, uh, Commedia dell'arte, that's what I'm going to say, group in um, Italy that he, of international actors. And he thought, gee, I might want to try acting. I did a little bit of acting when I was 10 at a, at a New York theater, which he did. And uh, so he, he, he wanted to try again. So uh, he did that. And from then on, he was an actor, basically. It's never lost the, you know, the, the, the 
the, the ability to write and the willingness mm. to write, but he, he liked the collaborative nature of acting, right? What an interesting um, intent or, you know, a realization that leads to such a different path. I mean, obviously, everything that he learned up to that point still serves him, as you said, in this context now. But he was like, I'm tired of being alone through this or academic feels very lonely and decided to go acting. That's quite yeah, the switch. Yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah. Something yeah. tells me he's the type of narrator that likes to work with producers, <laughs> given mm. that he doesn't like to be yeah. alone. Operation, yeah. yeah, I mean, interestingly, he has his own recording studio, so he, I, I, I'm assuming he probably still has producers, but he, um, like he does it at his house, you know, kind of thing. So he doesn't, so it's still a bit remote, you know. Given that whole, I don't want to be alone. But now he has kids and he's married, so yeah. maybe it's kind of a maybe blessing relief some or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So what did he do with acting then? How far did he go with that? He he got into TV and movies in about 95. He got into Law and Order, which everybody seems to do. Uh, he played an autistic teenager there. He's been in The Sopranos. He played Corpy, Corky Caporale. I don't know how you say that protect, huh. properly, but he was he was a guy in the later seasons of The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, Ignaz, Ignatius D'Alessio in Boardwalk Empire, which is one I never watched, but oh, uh, wow. it was pretty darn famous. Okay, so, so he's he well established. For, yeah, wow. actor, yeah, yeah, he did those. Mm-hmm. He did um, like various, he's done various movies, like indie movies. And then he was in like Romeo Must Die, which is a pretty critically acclaimed thing uh, action kind of stuff he's in action he's done sort of more reflective things he he played in something called dinner rush so i had to play a crazy chef that like you know like an eccentric kind of chef there um yeah he he he's done a lot of different stuff and he's still kind of pretty active in that kind of space he's been producing some stuff he wrote and directed and starred in a movie about rudolph valentino called goodnight valentino and and people have said that his portrayal of Valentino was just really great. Um, mm. <laughs> Reviews on that, so, right? Uh, so yeah. he's done everything, like not just as an actor, but he's really explored this realm of TV and cinema, it seems. Yeah, he, he's always up for a new challenge. He doesn't, he, he said, I, I wouldn't want to do the same thing all the time. That he, mm. I guess if he got into a successful series, he might consider that. But like for a long-term leading role, he's been like, a recurring role in a lot of series, but, um, but really he didn't want to do that. He wanted to do different stuff all the time. So, mm. so that, does he that finds mean, that more challenging. Does that mean that he's still working in parallel doing both acting and audiobook narration on the side? At the same I time? think, I think to some extent, yes. Although he's pretty well in demand for audio narration too, but kind of like a lot of other of our, uh, people we've talked about i think uh he he just manages to do everything you know like right. fit, fit everything in where he can you use the word precise to describe his writing style and i i definitely agree with that if there's anything in common between all of the popular audiobook narrators is that they enunciate immaculately well that's mm. the most important thing is that you can say the words properly and use the right pacing but his pacing is good from the sample that I heard in the the other little bits that I've heard online of him. Um, but it's his enunciation and clarity of his voice that's just mm. stunningly good. This man sounds like he never needs to clear his throat. Right. 
Yeah, his tone yeah. is special. It hits the right spot. Like he was built in a lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really great. And um, like I heard him on an interview talking about poetry and how he really loves poetry. And then someone said, well, can you, the interviewer said, can you read us? a selection and all of a sudden he went into the the narrator voice and it was like oh like (laughs) right just in awe yeah actually that's a that's a great uh point i love hearing because i've heard um some of these you know live readings that narrators will do when it's a live audience and such and they'll go from just you know banter and crowd engagement and riffing with the interviewer to okay and then start their reading and it's there's a there's a click right there's that place that they have to get to that voice that they have to put on that energy or something that equilibrium that they have to find i wonder how difficult it is to find it on the spot versus you know the environment stepping into the studio and getting there that way yeah i mean i kind of have a little bit of experience in that like doing my radio shows and mm. such cuz once you're behind the mic, it's kind of you, you, you get into that space. But if you're on a stage, yeah, you have to really get in the zone, I suppose. Yeah, quickly, differently, exactly. Um, tell us more about how he got into the audiobooks. Well, it's interesting. I guess he had recorded um, a, a language education program for a guy called Paul Rubin. Uh, and then Paul Rubin was going to start his own audiobook studio and asked Edward, Eduardo, excuse me, to, to narrate, uh, one of his books from, it happened to be The Prince by Machiavelli. So not, not any old book. It was a classic, right? Uh, from like 400 years ago kind of deal. <laughs> and, uh, he agreed to do it. And it was interesting hearing about that because he he said he he was really naive when he started he said well i'll just record myself reading a book what's so special about that you know i'll just get it done it'll be a little project it'll be fun and then i can go back to my real life kind of thing and uh he he only realized after he'd started doing it that it was a really tiring process um really labor intensive as everybody as all our narrators have said yeah um you come home after a day's recording and you pass out on the couch uh, i can this is true of musicians as well mm-hmm. um oof, it can be quite tiring right it must be mentally um, draining to read like that all the time of course oh yeah absolutely and then and then as he read a few more books cuz he he kind of liked doing it um he didn't understand what he was getting into with audiobooks like he didn't quite understand the popularity of them even back in 2007 they were they were gaining you know purchase there was lots of cd you know people still buying them on cds and and audible was around i think at that point or just getting started i can't remember when it got started but uh yeah so he and then he started getting fan letters you know about you know thank you for you know, reading these books because helped me get through a divorce or it helped me prepare my art for my art show. And now when I see those paintings, all I hear is your lovely voice and the the books I was reading. And so he just sort of didn't understand that that was, that was what could happen to a person. He just kind of had thought it was another, a voice job, you know, a bit of an acting job, but he came to view narration as an art form in itself. Well, it's different because when you're listening to radio or a podcast, it's clear that 
the people on the air, the voices that you're hearing are speaking to lots of people. But there's something about audiobooks where it feels like they're reading for you specifically. Like it's a very personal thing. So it makes sense yeah. to me that these people are getting like a personal connection to this guy. Yeah, and that's what he, he says too. He says it's a really intimate kind of form as, as is, again yeah. a lot of our mm-hmm. narrators tell us or tell tell the interviewers that i read uh, <laughs> um and he says like he's first in service to the author because the author wrote the book and he wants to pay homage to to that but but it's also um you know the listener he does want the listener to feel connected to the story he wants to build the world for the listener right um because they don't have the words in front of them to he's the words right. he has to be the words kind of thing right and by extent like as you both said already the world and the time because that's the thing like we connect with books in such different ways and this is not just audiobooks but something's going on in our lives or we're going through a, a particular part of a season maybe it's something as simple as just getting the summer started with a particular book and if for nostalgia it's huge to think that the the place you'll go to includes this person's voice when you think back about a book or i think back about where you were when you were reading this book like any of your favorite series right pick them and if you've re-read a book re-listened there are probably parts of that book that take you back to that original listen where you were or what was going on in your life or just something that it it tugs at you. Um, But it feels so mm, high sensory because it's a person's voice, not just the words on a page. I can remember where I was when I listened to like any given audiobook. Yeah. Can you right? It takes that? you back. Yeah. yeah it always takes yeah, you back to much. time and place, right? Especially the original listen. Like I said, like where was I? I was on the bus to this place or oh my gosh, that was my first week at work when I read this. Like it's very vivid. It sticks with you. It feels like when you're reading a book, it marks that time in your uh-huh. life. It's like a chapter mm-hmm, in your life. Right. Well, that's yeah. a, that's intense. I, I just hearing that, you know, people were sending fan mail about why this person's uh, or where they were when this person's voice hit them or when they read this book is probably felt so powerful to him as a, a fulfilling experience of voice work. So we know that he read um, The Exchange by John Grisham, but if some of our listeners want to listen to uh, other books that Eduardo has read, um, what are some of the popular books that he's narrated? There's a book by Jess Walter called Beautiful Ruins um, from, I think, actually from 2012, but it won the 2013 Audie Award for Best Male Narrator. Um, he, he read Watchers by Dean Koontz from 2019, one of those crazy genetically modified animal books, I think, <laughs> that he does. <laughs> um, he's he's read uh, many classics, like, I mean, War and Peace, like, poof. That's that's a pretty long yep. book. Uh, he did a 135-hour, six-volume series of a book by a, a European uh, author called called My Struggle by Karl Ove uh, Knausgaard, and uh, he, he this this is really high fluting kind of you know memoir sort of stuff. And uh, he said you know when he was reading that because it was over five years while the translations got done and everything he he started dreaming about being the guy because he was reading it for like 
he kept having to go back to the book. And so he sort of, be, he felt like he was becoming the guy, right? Because he was the I in the first person narration, right? Uh, like, method acting. Yep. A 135 yeah. hour memoir? I mean, six, well, six parts. different six different books. Volumes. <laughs> His memoir has volumes. Yeah. 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 How we gotta talk about you... that guy. Yeah, who is that? I don't know. I've <laughs> never read the book. I don't know. Um, but like, my goodness, do you have a lot to share, sir? <laughs> my lord. Yeah. Uh, he also read the Hebrew Bible. Is that right? He d- he did. I I assume it's an English translation. I think it is. I just looked it up on Audible, and it and it had another person. Had an actual author put to it, so I'm I'm sure that's the translator guy. Uh, so I'm I'm hoping he didn't have to read it in Hebrew, but maybe he did. I don't know. Um, yes, the 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 um, the New York Times has called him the voice of God because he narrated the, the Hebrew <laughs> <Yeah>. Bible. <laughs> that's quite the responsibility to have to read the Bible. Yeah, yeah he's also read a whole lot of um, how do I say that the the it's, it's like Tibetan Buddhism kind of books. He's done some Dalai Lama things. Some wow. Uh, is it Thiknahan? Thiknatan. I can't pronounce it right, but the he's a famous um, uh, monk that wrote a whole lot of. Uh, well, that is a Dalai Lama, actually. What am I talking about? But uh, yeah, just a whole lot of um, uh, mindfulness Buddhism type books. The, the Tao Te Ching. Um, he's 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 read. You know, he'll he'll read. He he wrote a a thing for Audible with Jess Walter um, mm. called The Angel of Rome, which is about his time in, in Rome, actually, uh, you know, soaking all that in. And what did that, what was that like for him? Um, yeah, he j- I believe he was a part of uh, Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders, uh, which is a really, it's a multi-cast recording. David Sedaris is in it, among other people. And uh, it's... Uh, but I think he did the narration, the main narration of that, if I'm remembering correctly. He definitely has a type, eh? I was just going to say, <laughs> like, you can, you know, you hear what it is that he's been reading. You're like, yeah, I get that. Because his voice is so, like, you want him on all of that kind of thing. He sounds like a professor, doesn't he? Right. Like, yeah. he can, we can learn a thing or two. Yeah, but, he's into he, the but, philosophical, but read, educational. Yeah, but, but he read Dean Koontz, so, you know. And and he and he's read um, Don, like uh, some Don Grisham, some Jeffrey Deaver. <laughs> like, he's read some popular stuff, too, right? Mm. So, But he brings that yeah. aura to it anyway. Yeah, I think so. The vocal aura. What's going on with his poetry right now? Um, he, I'm not sure if he's still doing this now, but for a while he was doing a poem a week on like posting it online for people to listen to. And I don't know if it was one of these pandemic, you know, things that people were doing, like Patrick Stewart was reading Shakespeare's sonnets, you know, during the pandemic on YouTube or whatever. Uh, but (laughs) so I don't know if he's still doing that, but he was doing that and he was asked by the publishers favor and favor to do the 100th anniversary of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, which as, as an English nerd, I'm like, mm. wow, he got picked to do that? Like, it's one of those poems where the footnotes are longer than the poem. <laughs> <laughs> and But but he loved Eliot so much in university, he used to he used to type out the, the poems so he could, like, get more connected to them or whatever. Like, so it was kind of a neat thing that in 2021 he got asked to do this. Thank you so much, Sarah. Before we sign out today, I just want to let you know that we want to hear your feedback and your contributions. Uh, Anything you have to say, really. Um, What you thought of a book that we reviewed, um, your comments on our 
ponderations on all things audiobooks. Is that a word? Pon- if Shakespeare can Ponderance? invent a word, so can I. Okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> I would have gone with ponderous. <laughs> you can reach us toll free at 1 866 509 4545, or you can send us an email. That's probably easier at feedback at ami.ca. Honestly, anything and everything, we want to hear about it, and we'll feature you on the show. That's it. Next week, we're going to talk about why and how we choose to classify books into genres. Interesting. It's been going on forever. We take it for granted. And now there's fusion of this, that, and the other as one chunk of a category. It's very confusing. So we want to talk about it with you. And we've got lots more planned, obviously, because it's all things audiobooks for an hour. I'm Ramia Amadin with Jacob Shemansky, technical producer Nisreen Abdel-Majid. And until next time, happy audiobook listening. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.